Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Thank you so much, Adam, and uh, thank you all uh, very much for uh, your prayers. While Sammy and I have been traveling, as Ad was just praying, uh, we've been in Australia and Austria, which is confusing. I'm told that there is a, an actual desk at the airport in Austria because so many people turn up at, in Austria thinking they've arrived in Australia. Uh, and you may have seen that T-shirt that Austrian people wear with a picture of a kangaroo crossed out saying no kangaroos in Austria. Uh, but we, we have been in both. And um, in Australia, it was absolutely thrilling to uh, formally launch the 24-7 prayer uh, movement as an organization in Australia, in Melbourne. Um, you know, we'd booked a venue, we outgrew that, we had to book another venue, that was full. And just an amazing sense of the Holy Spirit in our midst. And then uh, I know a number of you were able to join us last weekend in Vienna, where we had such a great time with the 24-7 International uh, Conference there. Actually, uh, over the last month, we've had a 24-7 conference in Colorado Springs uh, with almost 1,000 people. We've had um, uh, 500 uh, in Ireland. Uh, we've had uh, 600 in Australia and, I don't know, over 1,000, I think, in, in Austria. So it's been an amazing month of people coming together around this great call to prayer, mission, and justice, uh, calling the Church of Jesus Christ back to Jesus Christ. Uh, if any of you are new here, let me just be absolutely clear, this is just normal Christianity. There's 2.6 billion of us in the world gathering today to do what we're doing, to sing songs of worship to the Lord, uh, to get the Bible open, the world's best-selling book, and learn from it, learn from the greatest human being who ever lived, Jesus Christ, who we believe was also the very revelation of God, the very Son of God. And and uh, so this is normal Christianity. And um, Emmaus Road, we started in the back room of a pub. We now have congregations here and in Aldershot and in Woking. Uh, we're soon going to need to start a second service here. And uh, then I'm hatching plans with the team for our next church plant. I know you're all going to be saying where, 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 but I'm not telling you. Uh, so... So, so, you know, we, we just believe that this stuff's true and that the gospel works uh, because our experience backs that up. Is that okay? Uh, but it was a great time in Vienna. I felt so proud of uh, this church, actually, in that context. Numbers of you involved. Uh, Jill Weber being like the, the, the person she is. Uh, Timo uh, leading worship in English and German in the votive Kirche uh, there. Uh, Natalie leading worship. Pete Burton, like monster of rock, just holding everything together. The Yegnazars. I must have started a list, but it was just, I felt really proud of this team. Uh, we had 32 different nations together. We commissioned three new communities. We were led in prayer for the crisis in the Middle East by a woman from Bethlehem. Um, not, not just someone having an opinion on social media, someone who's being, uh, who's right at the heart of it all. We, we had a, a devotional time led by our team in Lebanon. Um, they couldn't get out of the country. There was a power cut in the middle of the video call. Uh, we, we, we heard from a woman who lives in Kiev. She said, everybody there has lost somebody. Uh, 
but she said, you know, the church is growing. Uh, there are no atheists left. She said, zero. I haven't met one since the war began. Everyone not just believes, but wants to know God, wants to know there's life beyond death. And she, they've started seven new community projects in Kiev since the war began and have led, she said, tens of thousands to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's another story behind what the BBC tells you. So anyway, it's been a wonderful few weeks, but boy, we're happy to be home. Isn't it nice, your own bed, your own loo? There's something about your own loo. <laughs> Too much information. This is the moment my wife... Okay. Now, um, it's highly risky, this. Normally, when I'm asked to speak, I'm given a very tight brief. Uh, but Adam just said, yeah, I speak on anything you want. I, I said to him, really? He said, yeah. Uh, and then on the way, and I said, can I just double check? I can speak on anything I want. He said, you may. Uh, so that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to share from a, a, a bit of the Bible. I don't think we've ever taught on in this church, but it's one I've been thinking about a great deal in my own personal life. And I think it's one of the more interesting verses in the Bible. Uh, so we're going to look together at 2 Kings 18, verse 4 to 6, the destruction of the bronze serpent. You didn't expect me to say that, did you? Uh, so if you're able to do so, let's stand, shall we, uh, out of reverence for the reading of God's word. 2 Kings 18, verses 4 to 6. Hezekiah, uh, that's King Hezekiah, removed the high places. He smashed the sacred stones and he cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehoshtan, which was onomatopoeia. It sounds like a snake. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given to Moses. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. <laughs> Sorry, but the seats here still sound like a seal colony when you... <laughs> Perhaps whilst they're renovating next week, they can use some WD-40. It's a fascinating statement here that Hezekiah kept the commands the Lord had given Moses because he has literally just destroyed one of those very commands given to Moses. You see, in Numbers chapter uh, 21, verse 9, God commands Moses to do something extraordinary. There is a, the, the people of Israel are in the wilderness, and there is a plague of snakes, and people are getting bitten and dying, and they're desperate. They don't have a doctor to go to. They don't know what to do, and God says to Moses, what I want you to do is make uh, an image, uh, a bronze image of a serpent on a stick, and put it up over the camp, and when people look at it, they're going to get healed. And it was enormously effective. And um, so, so uh, this um, artifact has been preserved, you can imagine, for six centuries 
because it brought healing to the people of Israel uh, at, at that critical time. It's uh, seen depicted here. Michelangelo uh, did a, a many, many great arts, but this is on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. That's just one depiction of this moment. You see there the snake on the stick, and you'll, you'll recognize it because, of course, it is the symbol of pharmacies today and, indeed, of the World Health Organization. Here we go. Next slide. There we go, the World Health Organization. Can you see on the back of his shirt, you've got the snake on the stick. This is deep within uh, our consciousness uh, back three millennia. Uh, this, th this image of the snake on the stick bringing healing. And uh, so you can understand it's been cherished as a priceless artifact uh, by the people of Israel. And uh, Jesus himself, when he is talking about the significance of his forthcoming death on the cross, compares his death on the cross to this. And he says, I'm going to be lifted up over the camp like that snake on a stick. And anyone who looks to me is going to find forgiveness and healing. And so that's John 3 verse 14. So, so th th this is an enormously significant, I, I can't even put into words, this is Indiana Jones, eat your heart out stuff. They have still got this bronze snake on a stick and uh, it is of incalculable cultural, historical and spiritual significance to them. And then here comes a 25-year-old, that's how old uh, Hezekiah is. And he rises up and he breaks this precious artifact into pieces. And somehow in destroying this thing, which the Lord had commanded Moses to make, Hezekiah is actually keeping the commandment the Lord had made to Moses. Go figure. It's so easy, isn't it, to worship the past. Even the things God has said and done in the past. These things can become dangerous distractions from what God is doing today. Yesterday's icons can easily become today's idols. Yesterday's grace can become today's graven image. Sometimes when we think we're keeping the fifth commandment, which is the one about honoring your parents, we're in fact breaking the first and second commandments, which is about committing idolatry. I remember talking to this um, youth worker. And, you know, he, he, he was covered into twos, had, you know, when they have piercings all down the edge of their ear, it's like a, a, a spiral binder on a, on a, you know. And, you know, he was sort of a, a cool guy, and I thought, you know, he's going to have a radical vision for his youth work. And I was encouraging him in that. I said, do whatever it takes, you know, to, to, to disciple the young people that you've got and reach the ones that you haven't. And he started to cry. I said, what's up? And this is what he said. He said, they won't even let me change the hymn books. Do you understand how quickly, how quickly we begin to worship the thing God has given us in the past and miss what he wants to do now? I have a friend who's a, a vicar 
in a, a, a seaside town. And um, wonderfully, um, he led someone to Jesus Christ who then wanted to get baptized. And uh, he was, my, my friend was at a fraternal where all the vicars in that town get together. And he was sharing the good news of this person who become a Christian and want to get baptized. And uh, the, one of the other vicars turned to him and said, where are you planning to do it? And he said, on the beach, where else? And the vicar said to him, which side of the pier? He said, well, I hadn't really thought about it. Why? He said, well, you may not do it on the east side. That is my parish. You haven't asked my permission. I mean... It is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, I doubtless the parish system was a very good thing in its day. What an apostolic ambition. Let's carve the entire nation up and work out how can we pastor and disciple every bit of the nation. What a brilliant aim. But now it's become a bronze serpent that someone is bowing down before, missing the new thing that God is doing. It is so easy to worship dead religion, to worship our buildings, And can I suggest that our kind of church is not immune from this predilection? Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, uh, sometimes called the Prince of Preachers, preached a, a famous sermon on this passage. And he said this, and forgive the antiquated language, he said, Our sires, the nonconformists, when they left the state-created religion to maintain a spiritual worship and gathered themselves together as the servants of God, did well in bearing their uh, protest against the less glaring idolatries of their age. In their day as now, there existed the very common idolatry of superstitious reverence of buildings. Certain piles of stone, brick and timber are regarded as holy places. It is thought that inside certain walls, God is more peculiarly present than outside, where the trees are growing and the birds are singing. Our forefathers protested against this by never calling their buildings churches. They knew that they would not be. They, uh, they knew they could not be. They knew that churches mean companies of faithful men and women. They called their places of uh, worship meeting houses. That is what they were and nothing more. The veneration of building materials, uh, of altars and pews and cushions and tables and candlesticks and organs and cups and plates is sheer, clear idolatry, he says. He continues, worship God is a command which needs to be spoken in these days in tones of thunder. There is none holy save the Lord, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Hear ye the Lord's words, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? And so here we are in a theater where people will soon be donning velvet pants for pantomimes. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I had the great joy of... um, spending a bit of time with the late, great Brendan Manning, who was a, a Catholic priest, um, wrote a New York Times best-selling book 
about the grace of God's heart and uh, was a recovering alcoholic, um, a chain smoker, and loved the Lord with all his heart. Go figure. And um, I remember he told me a story once um, about, you know, he, he used to be part of a religious order called the, the, the Little Brothers of Jesus. And they had a monastery in Spain. And uh, every year they would go up into the mountains to some caves, a series of caves in the mountains in the Spanish desert there, overlooking this little village. And each of them would have a cave each and would spend a month in silent prayer before the Lord. And, uh, and, and they'd be largely fasting. I think a little bit of food and water was brought to them. Someone rang a bell, he told me, and you come up, you get your food and water, you go back to your cave, and that was it. And, um, and I said to him, what do you pray about? He said, well, to be honest, we, a lot of our time is praying for the village we could see below us. So I said, great. And he said, you know, the lovely thing was the villagers, simple folk, farmers, um, were so grateful to us for our prayers every year, that they used to throw a special party, a feast for us when we came down from the mountain. And he said it was the nicest thing. You'd been fasting for a month. Um, you were hungry. And, you know, you were dirty. You hadn't seen anyone. And it was a lovely prospect as you processed down from the cave, knowing that there was a, a party waiting for you. And he said one time, um, as we, as we processed down, looking like something out of Monty Python's you know, Life of Brian, with hair all over the place, big beards, he said, we, we discovered that a bunch of medical students from um, uh, Madrid had come to visit us in our monastery and had been told, oh, they're not here, they're up in their, their caves having a prayer time, but don't worry, they're coming down soon. And so the medical students had decided to stick around. They were quite excited, this great moment where, you know, the, the, the great Hutley men would come down the mountain. But the villagers were so impressed with these sophisticated medical students from, uh, from Madrid that they just couldn't wait and, decide, and decided to throw the party early for the medical students. So Brennan said, we came down, and we were meant to be like really super holy, really looking forward to this feast, and we found out these wretched kids had eaten it for us, but we were meant to be all holy. But they didn't know this is what had happened, and so they were just thrilled to see us. They lit a fire, and they were dancing and praising the Lord, and, and he said, we were just miserable as hell, <laughs> but pretending to be holy. And he said, we got back to the monastery, and the leader of our little monastery, the abbot, his name is Dominique Voyom, said, uh, Don't, you're not allowed to go to your bedrooms, you're not allowed to go wash, get in the chapel now. A month they've had in the caves. So they went to the chapel, and Dominique Voyom just, just reprimanded them. He said, I bet each one of you felt you knew how to encounter God in the cave. And they all said, yes. He said, I bet you had a wonderful time with the Lord. Yes. He said, but if you had learned anything at all in the cave, it was this. God was no longer in the cave. He was in the singing and the dancing around the fire. You were there thinking, get me back to my cave. I know where God is. You miserable medical students. If you had learned anything, God was in that moment. Because his name is I Am. When he reveals himself to Moses, it is, I am. You will only ever meet God in the present tense. You will never, ever meet him in the past nor in the future, but now. I mean, I hope you have a great lunch. I hope you had a great breakfast. But right now, you're in a room, in a theater, 
with a guy trying to unpack the scriptures to you, you will only ever encounter God in this moment. So open your hearts. Don't allow the wonderful things or the terrible things of the past to distract you from what God is doing now. Sometimes he'll tell you, make a bronze serpent, and sometimes he'll tell you, shatter the bronze serpent. But what is God saying to you now? I wonder what the new thing is that the Spirit is doing in your life. I wonder what the new thing is that he is saying to you. I wonder, is it possible that some of us might be missing what God is doing or saying because it is simply unfamiliar to us or even offensive to us? Is it possible that some of us are trading off yesterday's obedience, yesterday's great adventure, yesterday's revelation? In John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus says that the mark of being born of the Holy Spirit is that we'll be wild, we'll be unpredictable like the wind. Jesus says to Nicodemus, no one knows where it comes from or where it goes, so it is of those born of the Spirit. And so I have to ask myself continually, have I still got that posture I certainly used to have, where I said to the Lord, you're Lord and I'm not, so you say the word and I'll say yes. I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything. I used to think that would get easier as I got older, but I find it gets harder. I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Eric Little, the great uh, Olympian athlete. They, they made that wonderful uh, Oscar-winning movie about him, Chariots of Fire. And he, he ran, as you may well recall, in 1924, Paris Olympics, his, his best sport was the 100 meters, and he was favorite to, to win the gold. I mean, we all know 100 meters, is that's kind of the pinnacle of the Olympics. And uh, then it was broken to him that the heats of uh, the 100 meters were to be run on a Sunday. And he was a Scot and a strict Sabbath keeper. And he said, it's against my religion, I refuse to run on a Sunday. And they said, this is ridiculous. I think in the film, the king himself comes and tries to negotiate with Little. And he, 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 he won't budge. And so he drops out. You imagine, he drops out of the, 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 the race that he has been training for all his life. This is the pinnacle of his life. And he drops out. Because he, he must be true to what he believes God wants of him. And uh, then he ran in the 400 meters instead, because that wasn't on a Sunday, and it wasn't his best sport, but uh, he, he won. He was an Olympian uh, gold medal winner for this country. We all know that bit of the story, but what you may not know is this, that after that, um, Eric Liddell went as a missionary to China. And 20 years later, we find him interned in a Chinese prisoner of war camp. And there's this extraordinary moment. It's kind of a throwaway thing in his biography, but it struck me very powerfully. That one day in the prisoner of war camp in China, some young people were playing hockey. It was a Sunday. And the match was getting really, really heated. In fact, it looked like it was going to go to fisticuffs. And someone came to Eric and said, Eric, would the only person we think they'll listen to who could referee this match is you. Would you mind? 
So quietly, the man who turned down an Olympic gold because he wouldn't run a heat on a Sunday agreed to referee a match on a Sunday in a prisoner of war camp. Do you understand that he is responding to what he senses God telling him to do in the moment, whatever the cost? I mean, he could easily have said, you know what? I actually passed up an Olympic gold for this. I'm not about to go and referee your stupid hockey match. But he was someone who was moving on with the revelation of God in his life. 20 years earlier, obedience to God had meant not running and now breaking the Sabbath to preserve the peace was what he sensed God telling him to do. Sometimes we make the bronze serpent, sometimes we shatter it. So how do we do this? How do we live with this posture of availability to the God whose name is I am, who is always doing a new thing? The first thing I want to suggest to us is that we must renew our commitment again and again to be a prophetic people. I mean two things by this. The first is a people that live differently and therefore can speak prophetically into the culture. But I also mean a people that are radically led by the Holy Spirit. I've been uh, with all of you looking at the book of Acts over the recent weeks. And one of the things that is so striking is how their entire strategy was determined by prophetic interruption. You know, uh, you know they, they think the gospel is just for the Jews. And then Peter has a vision with an apparently blasphemous revelation from God. And the gospel jumps the Gentiles. That's Acts chapter 10. Paul thinks he's going one way, then he has a dream in which he's redirected somewhere else. Again and again, we see the Holy Spirit uh, directing them. And I believe that this is a direct invitation to us in this time. Emmaus has always sought to be a community led by the Spirit in quite dramatic ways. I love how at family business meetings we make space to pray and to listen to God and prophetic words are shared, which actually shape our budgets and our plans. It's kind of scary. Some of you will know that, you know, Sammy and I were, were, were led to come to Guildford and to join in with a, 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 what was a very small little church community at, at that time because one of our sons heard the audible voice of God. Uh, we were living in Chichester at the time, telling us we were meant to move to Guildford. And uh, Sammy, being the great, you know, uh, heroine of the faith that she is, when, when our, our, our young son said, I'm hearing a voice, thought he was going crazy and told, told him to ignore it. He started crying and said, but I think it's God. And she said, oh, we're supposed to believe in that. So she, she said, well, what's the voice saying? And he said, I think God's saying, move, move, move to Guildford. And so I, I phoned one of my mentors and said, well, how, you know, how seriously do you take a six-year-old hearing the audible voice of God? And he said, you're nuts if you ignore it, and you're nuts if you redirect your whole life around it. I said, thanks for nothing. <laughs> so then we, because we've been t praying every night, the Lord would show us where we were supposed to be with our boys. And uh, then we went out for, for a meal, and <laughs> uh, Danny, who was four or five at the time, um, 
who's wired quite differently to, 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 to Hudson, who'd heard the audible voice. And we said to Danny, and it felt a bit weird because he's so little. Now, Danny, Hudson thinks we're supposed to move to Guildford. What do you sense? And he, he just milked the moment because it's so rare for the youngest to have the full attention of the family. He used to have electrostatically charged white hair. It looked like a kind of orangutan gone wrong, but very cute. And he kind of sat back, he put his little podgy fingers together, and he saw, and I thought, okay, that's enough, don't egg it. What do you, and, he, and he said, I think God is saying, I think God is saying, if we move to Guildford, can we have a dog, please? Well, God speaks to us all differently. That's how Noodle came into our lives. We've always sought to be led by the Spirit. As a community, I remember praying with Jill Weber at Waverley Abbey long before she moved here when she was living in Canada about her possibly moving here. And as we prayed, there was this squawking noise and three Canada geese flew overhead and landed in the lake at Waverley Abbey. And she being from Canada... And Canada geese being a Celtic symbol of the Holy Spirit took this as a sign. I remember Julian Adams, the, the, the South African prophet who now lives in Boston, coming and speaking at one of our meetings and make, asking Pete Burton to stand up and saying, you're going to write music that will soothe the soul of a troubled generation. And so Pete pulled together some of our brilliant musicians and created that stunning uh, album, Into the Light. And then COVID happened. And we thought, oh, God really did know how troubled the generation would be. And it was this beautiful sound. That so Who would like them to release another album, by the way? Yes, no pressure, Pete. Um, just turn on the magic. <laughs> but also, I think we, we want to be continually opening ourselves to the prophetic. But also, I believe that we need to keep coming back to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the human heart. We need to keep coming back to holiness in our own lives and as a church the words of King David, search me, God, and know my thoughts. Keep my heart right. I don't want to be trapped in dead religion. And so, and forgive me, I'm going to be quite challenging here, and please hear me. These are challenges I'm asking myself as well. Well, but are, are there idols that I need to break in my own heart today? Is it, is it possible that I am worshipping Christianity more than Christ? I think it is possible to pray and worship more in public than in private. And I want to suggest that if you're doing that, that's unhealthy. It is possible to be in bondage to a particular devotional routine. And if you've done it, you feel pious for the rest of the day. And if you haven't, you feel guilty. Is that an idol you need to break? It's possible to worship the career that God has given you. God has given it to you. But it has become a non-negotiable, something to which you feel entitled, something for which you are willing to sacrifice more than you are willing to sacrifice for the Lord. Hello? It's possible, of course, to worship money. Money is a gift from God. But when we value the gift more than the giver, we're in deep trouble. Whenever you're less generous to others than God is to you, you're in danger of idolatry. 
say that again. Whenever you're less generous to others than God is to you, you're in danger of idolatry. Some people worship romance and security more than God. They put their lives on hold waiting for a marriage partner. Or they allow that one natural desire to dominate and control every other decision they make. Even Christian fellowship can become an idol. It's wonderful to have a vibrant Christian community. Friends who encourage us and speak the truth to us. Share inspiring stories from their own faith journeys. I found that it's possible to enjoy these relationships more than I am enjoying my relationship with God and to sort of live a vicarious faith. Maybe you've been a Christian for five years or 20 years or more. It's easy to begin to feel that you've learned a thing or two. You look back at the naivety of your early years of faith and laugh. Your zealotry is a bit embarrassing. These days you know how to talk quite impressively about the things of faith. And it is easy, therefore, to slip into superiority, to confuse holy habits for actual encounters with God and the practice of prayer for the reality of prayer. As we prepare now to come to communion, I want to suggest to you that God is doing a new thing in our nation, in this church, and in each one of our lives. It is thrilling, but it is also challenging because God's willingness to do a new thing often outstrips our capacity to receive it. It is so easy to worship Christian leaders. Hello? Things, people raised up by God in season that should no longer be reverenced in that way. It's so easy to worship things that are familiar and think that by just going through the hoops, we're doing what we need to do. It is so easy to confuse personal preference for the peace of God. It's so easy to worship the past. And so I want to invite myself, my wife, my church family, let us be like Hezekiah, who was able to come to this priceless artifact and understand that to be true to the presence of God in that moment he needed to do the opposite of what Moses had done and smash it are there things we need to stop are there things we need to change are there things we need to start and so I want to uh, as we prepare to come and respond by taking communion together Let me just tell you that Eric Little died in that prisoner of war camp on the 21st of February 1945, just weeks before the end of the war. And his last words were two words. He said this, complete surrender. Complete surrender.
And it seems to me that that isn't just about the day that we give our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, you're Lord and I'm not. I'll follow you. But that is the posture of discipleship, that in every moment of our lives, we come back to that place of surrender. What do you want to say now? What do you want to do now? Romans 12 verse 1, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your holy and acceptable worship before the Lord. And so as we come to communion, it is a moment of remembrance and of redemption and of resurrection. It's remembrance of Christ being lifted on the cross like that serpent in the desert. Understanding that God himself so loved us that as he saw us messing up our lives, our relationships and our planet, he could not sit back passively but had to come and become one of us and die in our place on that cross. By his wounds we may be healed. By the cross, we might be forgiven and given a new start. But it's not just a moment of remembering something. The people of Israel were pretty good at remembering the significance of the bronze serpent. It's also a moment of redemption. As we come to communion, there is a sense in which we are becoming Christians. Again, maybe one or two people, this is your first time. You're going to come and take the bread and wine and say, I'm in. I don't understand it all, but I'm in. I need this. It's a moment where, as it were, we look to the serpent and find healing. It's a moment of forgiveness. And then it's also, as well as remembrance and redemption, it's a moment of resurrection. Because, And this is the key. If, if, if taking communion is not a moment of resurrection, it is just a religious idol. And I want to suggest that communion is taken in many contexts in an idolatrous way. <laughs> If it is not about the very presence of God resurrected in our midst now, if it's not about the new thing God is doing now, it is just remembrance, it is just a holy relic. But our conviction is this, that the God who was crucified, who was hung up like a snake on a stick all those years ago, is alive and moving in our midst. That he rose from the grave, that's Easter, and is here by his spirit. And therefore, I want to invite you that as you come to take communion, as well as remembering what he did with great gratitude, and as well as looking to him and saying, I need your healing and forgiveness, I want to ask you to open yourself to the wild possibilities of the Spirit of God taking you to new places, asking you to do new things, speaking to you in new ways, doing things that are unfamiliar or even might feel offensive to you. Open yourself to the new day of God. There is a new song that is sounding in our nation. Everything is shaking. There are wars and rumors of wars. And if this thing isn't true, go do something else. But if it is, give your life to it. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest to you, he will not let you down. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. There's nothing too sinful that you can do that he won't forgive. He will begin to heal your relationships. He'll begin to help you understand why you're alive on this planet. He'll begin to move you into the very person he created you to be and so come to the communion table not just to remember a historic crucifixion and not just hoping for a bit of forgiveness and healing as you look to the snake on the stick 
but opening yourself dangerously to the God of the cosmos to be God in you and through you and speak to you however he chooses to do that. For some of us, this is a matter of laying something down as we come to the communion table, realizing that we have been worshiping things, even good things, maybe even God things, and he's calling you to return to a place of surrender. And maybe as you come forward, you're very conscious this this specific thing. God, I think I've been getting into almost an idolatry around that experience, that revelation, that practice, that person. And others, it's about opening yourself to God in new ways. It's about Brennan Manning seeing that God is in the dancing of the medical students, even though it offended him. But what is God doing now? Maybe you've been wondering why he's not been acting in a particular way in your life or speaking to you in ways that are familiar. But maybe he's speaking in a new way to you for a new season. Maybe he's asking you to open your heart to new possibilities. And so as we come to the table, it is a moment of complete sacrifice to the God who was and who will be, but who is I am and is here for you now in this present moment. Amen? Okay. So let's get the musicians back if that's all right. And um, Ad, do you want to lead this? So as Ad comes up, can I just encourage you, just take a moment of quiet. What does this message mean for you? What is God saying to you? Is this something you need to lay down? Is there something that you need to reopen yourself to before God?